You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept backed by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So, uh, in this section, uh, just kind of what I seem to sort of pinpoint here is, um, there seems to be sort of like three somewhat different processes going on here, and the layout looks a little something uh, like this, It'll probably be up on the screen at some point. So one, there's a warning to the rich, so that's kind of one section. Two, then there's encouraging believers uh, to be patient through suffering, and then three, there, there's like this little section about swearing oaths that you're like, why did he put that there? Um, so the author begins this section by giving a pretty scathing rebuke uh, to those who are rich but have treated others poorly, uh, namely their slaves and servants. So James was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Uh, the Jewishness of the epistle tends to get overlooked when reading it. Um, for example, the way that the book starts with a greeting to the 12 tribes who have been dispersed. Also, as mentioned, the book references Jesus the least out of all the New Testament books, and we hear more about Old Testament figures like Rahab and Job than Jesus. But again, this doesn't mean that Jesus has nothing to do with the book. Uh, Jesus then is primarily writing to the Judean to a Judean audience. During this time, there were a lot of poor people because of the Roman governor, Pompey, um, whose actions caused many to lose their lands, plus the hefty taxes imposed by Herod the Great. Um, so people were then forced to become day laborers, uh, meaning they were paid their wages at the end of the day. During this time, landlords were known to be less than charitable to their tenants and workers. Uh, tenants could be easily replaced if they were not making a profit, and uh, could even be assassinated by the, Lord, the landlord's hitmen if they weren't uh, cooperating, so that's kind of scary. So all of this is to say that the, the conditions for the poor were pretty abysmal compared to the rich. Uh, the rich lived lavish, lavishly and hoarded their wealth while withholding the wages that were due to their workers. So to do such a thing in this period would mean that people would starve because they would not have the money to buy the things they needed for themselves or their families. Um, so this is also a direct violation of the law as we see in places such as Levitic Leviticus 19 verses 13, which says, you shall not oppress your neighbor and rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you uh, all night until the morning. So. 
Remember that Jesus said in Matthew 22 that the law could be summed up in two commandments. Um, love, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love, and love your neighbor. The idea that James is getting at is not that you need to keep a set of rules, because again, there's that whole idea that like, well, this is like, you know, well, we got to do works, right? Um, but it's that when we do not treat people how Jesus wanted, to, wanted us to, this violates the intended relationship that God desires humans to have with him and each other. So, as Christians, we should call out injustices when, we, when people are mistreated. However, one of the main themes of James is that our lives ought to match what we believe and what we profess. <clears throat> In other words, don't be a hypocrite. Verses 1 to 6 are a judgment call against the violation of justice and human rights. Um, I've heard this common sentiment, you know, many times by Christians, or that, that Christians shouldn't judge because that is what the Bible says. Um, in Matthew 7, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, but this is not what it actually says. So it says, judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or can you, not say, or can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? And here's the big part, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the exhortation is not to judge that we are better than others, but that before we go calling out the wrongdoings of others, we first ought to examine our own actions. Uh, if we read the full context of what Jesus is saying, then we will see that if we are also committing the same injustices, we have no right to make a judgment call because we are also part of the problem. Fighting the battle against injustice starts with examining ourselves and purging our lives of such, such actions before we apply you know, the, the contents of these six verses to others. If we, are, if we are also ignoring or even partaking in such injustices, then such condemnations fall on us. So before we move on to the section about patience, because that's everyone likes to be in the patience section, um, we ought to ask ourselves, what side of this issue are we on? What are we doing to help those who are being oppressed and treated horribly? Here's a big one. Are we the rich person in this situation? What is our attitude towards those who are living in poverty? What is your immediate thought about someone you see living on the street? Is it immediately assumed that they chose to be in that position? Or are they there because of the unjust actions of others? I'm not here to necessarily answer that question, but to throw it out there for consideration. Um, so now, these are the questions over which we can surely debate the answers depending on the situation at hand. Some might even say that I'm maybe trying to bring some politics into the picture here, whereas others might say, well, theology or religion should stay out of politics. You can't please anyone these days. Um, yet, to the ancient people, the two were actually one and the same. 
what is clear, though, is that there should be no tolerance for people being impoverished or treated inhumanely due to the unjust actions of those who have the ability and resources to alleviate that suffering. Um, so I'm in university right now, and I figured since I have to learn this stuff, you get to learn a little bit too. Um, so I am taking a psychology class at the University of Calgary, and I wanted to share some learnings that I thought were kind of applicable. Um, so what I'll be clear on, though, is I'm not trying to apply these learnings and shove them into the text, because um, that would be eisegesis. Um, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a, bit of a framework with which to think about this text in our modern context. Um, so, psychology shows that we as people tend to make what are called either internal or external self-attributions. Uh, an external attribution is when we attribute behaviors to people based on their environment and their circumstances. So we might look at someone and say, well, they are poor because that's, it's a bad economy or maybe they were scammed and lost all their money. An internal self-attribution is when we attribute behavior based on what is going on with the person. So we would look at somebody who is poor and say, well, they are poor because they're lazy, or they're just choosing to be that way. The human tendency is that we primarily make internal self-attributions about others. Um, you know, well, they're stupid, they're lazy, you know, whatever. But we make external attributions primarily about ourselves. Well, I failed that test because the teacher's stupid. He's stupid. Um, I got pulled out, yeah, stupid cops put a speed trap there and they're stupid, you know, like, um, well, I, I'm not the problem, they're the problem. Um, this is something we do, we, we tend to do this. So I just wanna leave you with this as a little something to ponder in your life, right? Um, and I'm not saying that it's, you know, always bad to make internal attributions about others, and, you know, that might be the case, but it's just a little something to think about as you go out of here. When you, when you look at other people, maybe you shouldn't just immediately assume that because of the, the way they look or the situation that they're in that somehow they screwed up, so they deserve to be there. You don't know that. I don't know that. So... I just wanted to leave you with that because I, I, I read that and I'm like, huh, this sounds pretty applicable here. Um, but also another aspect of this verse is that James is warning the rich not to put their trust in the wealth that they have. James gives some very clear and blunt descriptions of the condition of the rich. The irony is that uh, later in the year AD 70, the Romans invaded and demolished Jerusalem and laid all the riches and wealth to waste. In verse 3, James states that the rich have laid up treasure in the last days. Um, this is in contrast with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, 19, uh, verses, 20, verses 19 to 21. Um, Do not lay up for yourselves tre treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth uh, nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, there is a warning here not to put our faith in things that will eventually fade away into dust. Uh, rather, we are to put our trust in that which is eternal, which is God himself. If we do not do this, 
then there is a great potential that this misplaced trust will lead to the mistreatment of others. Okay, now we're into the nice section of the, uh, well, maybe, not, maybe it's not so nice, but. Now this leads us into the next section of the passage, which is in which James speaks to those who, who are oppressed. So it's the other side of the coin now. So at first glance, it seems as if James is telling the poor to do nothing about their situation. Again, we must look at the social and political context of that day because the epistle was not written to you and me here in the year 2022, but there is still a lot of that stuff arguably going on in this time. Um, so as a result of much of this oppression, there, uh, there were revolts that took place, obviously. One possibility here um, is that James is writing to encourage believers um, to exercise patience to prevent violent uprisings that happened before and after this time. It is also possible that James may not want his disciples to be associated with such movements, um, with such movements, as the use of violence to advance the kingdom is contrary to what Jesus has mandated for his people. So, any actions we take. Um, Sorry. Any actions we take to work against worldly oppression should never be done in violence. So, secondly, James refers to being patient considering the expectation that these first century believers thought that Jesus was going to return within their lifetime. We ought to be careful with this one because I think too often we think that this means Jesus is going to come back in our day. Um, now that may very well be a possibility, but that was also what the people of this letter in James thought as well. Uh, therefore, I don't think we can take this verse and write entire books on how Jesus is going to come back uh, because of some event that happened last week. You know, Jesus is going to come back on January 4th of 2024, you know. I don't think we can do that based off of this verse. Um, but I'm not going to get into eschatology here, but I just want to simply say about this part that um, let's, let's hope for Christ's return, but trust that he will return when he deems it to be the time. And that's all I'm going to say about that, because I don't want to get into the, the rabbit hole of eschatology. Um, so here we come to that, that, like, that small little portion here, that, that one that you're like, why is that one there? So the last section of the passage is the one that deals with swearing oaths. Um, now, I don't know about you, but compared to the previous sections, um, this thought seems to be kind of tagged on somewhere uh, and kind of seems unrelated to what we've been talking about. Um, it's as if the author had also had another thought that he wasn't quite sure uh, where to put it, so he kind of just crammed it in there somewhere. Uh, it seems to me, however, that this thought is intended to be here. Um, what it does is point us to a broader theme of, of the overall biblical narrative. Um, now, if we go by an English translation and we simply isolate the verse, it seems as if this, so this is a so-called proof text to use in, in an argument for why people shouldn't swear. Because um, that's what it says, right? The problem is that's not what the text is getting at. Rather, we are being led to something deeper. Um, this verse harkens back to what Jesus says about swearing oaths in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 34 to 37. 
But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So remember how I said Jesus is barely mentioned in this epistle. Well, here we clearly see, and we've seen it before already, uh, Jesus' teachings at work through James' writing. Just because Jesus isn't mentioned doesn't mean he isn't there. Um, so I did a Bible word study in Logos Bible software uh, on the word swear. The Hebrew word that it translates to is, let's see if I get this right, omnu, omnuo, which means to take an oath or to swear an oath, um, or to promise, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why is this important? Well, this is what the Lexham Bible Dictionary has to say about this. So oaths functioned at the religious, legal, and individual levels as a means of binding the oath taker to his or her word. Oaths were used to confirm the truthfulness of an individual's word, bind individuals in a contract, or confirm God's intent to act according to his word. Oaths imposed a great sense of obligation among ancient Israelites. Breaking an oath was virtually unthinkable. Therefore, oaths were not to be made lightly or flippantly. Even rash oaths were binding and required confession of sin and sacrificial compensation if broken. So, this isn't just about breaking a promise. Well, you said you'd do the dishes, hon. Sorry, I, I will do the dishes when we get home. Um, <laughs> breaking an oath was something so unthinkable to ancient people, but it also reflects something about God. Taking an oath is one thing, but keeping it was the crucial part. It ties back into the nature of God and who he is. When God makes an oath, he will see it through. So let's look at a little bit more from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Oaths carry both implicit and explicit curses to be enacted on oathbreakers. An oath's ability to secure the truthfulness of the oath taker, however, finds its greatest power in connection with Yahweh. Yahweh served as a guarantor of an individual's oath. For instance, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 2, verses 23 to 24, Solomon swears by the name of Yahweh that he will put Adonijah to death. Otherwise, he will forfeit his own life. At a more fundamental level, breaking an oath is tantamount to breaking faith with Yahweh. It is to take his name in vain. The foolish oath that Joshua and the leaders of Israel make with the Gibeonites, contrary to God's command to conquer all the inhabitants of the land, illustrates the binding power of an oath. So the part of that quote that I want to focus on is the part of breaking faith with Yahweh by taking his name in vain. This comes directly from the Ten Commandments, which reads, uh, You shall not take the name of the, of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, as we see in Exodus 20, uh, verses 7. So again, if we just isolate this verse and take it out of context, it seems we have we got another reason not to use foul language. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, not giving you a reason to use foul language, but I'm, what I'm saying is that this verse is not saying that. Um... Um, this verse is related to a fundamental idea that pervades all of Scripture. It is tied to how we, as people of God, 
represent the image of God. From the very beginning, that is what we were meant to do, to bear God's image and represent him in this creation. We are to act in accordance with his will for us. The rest of the story then is about how we as humans had ultimately rejected that calling in favor of representing ourselves in our own interests. Um, Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser states that the point of this command specifically is to bear the name well. That is, this command is saying not to call yourself a follower of Yahweh, but then do things that would cause others to consider the name of Yahweh lightly. This here is what ties all of the themes of James together. Um, so I want to drive home the point that James is saying in this epistle. He is not saying that you need to do things or do more things in order to be saved. We need to stop moralizing the gospel into this framework where somehow you need to do something to earn your salvation. Rather, it is tied to belief in Jesus. But this is where people swing to the other end of the pendulum and say, well, I believe so I can live how I want now. This is not the gospel. Um, this is not the life of a Christian. We live in a world that likes to dichotomize things and restrict either-or categories. But James doesn't want us to do this. If you believe, you are saved by God's grace, period. But that belief should produce something radical in us. Salvation is not reducible to some incantational prayer you said 20 years ago, but then ever since then you lived your life how you see fit because you got that get out of hell free card. It should be transformational. And when people see our behavior, it brings into question whether we actually really believe. So again, I'm gonna drive home this point because um, I'm not standing up here trying to tell you that you need to do more things or else you aren't saved. What I want you to have firmly fixed in your mind, if you don't already, is that if you really believe, then you are saved. But if we treat people unjustly, we diminish their value and status. And when we as believers treat others in ways that are contrary to the life that God has called us to, it is as if God himself has done that egregious thing to that person and causes them to think that there can't be anything too special about this Yahweh, or more specifically for us, this Jesus, if this is the fruit that his followers produce. So when you read the epistle of James, keep in mind that you're not simply being asked or instructed just to do more things. You are being instructed, or to, you're, you are instructed to be something, or better yet, to be someone. The someone that you should look like when you encounter others should look like Jesus. Jesus has done the work to restore the Edenic vision where we will be at peace with God and each other. By loving others, we are acting out God's kingdom in the world. So I do want to conclude. I just have a couple points to conclude with here. Um, so if you got nothing else out of today, <laughs> here's, here's sort of a summary of what, of what we've talked about. So one, God hates injustice and loathes hypocrisy because it diminishes the people that he has created in his image. 
He desires that we deal in love and strive to be at peace with one another. Um, when we are going through hard times, um, we must learn patience and trust in God. Is that what James is? That's that is what James has prescribed, uh, but not a passive kind of patience, but an active one. Um, three, if you if you this is the main thing that I want you to leave here with. If you believe, then you are saved. If you're sitting here thinking like, ah, oh, well, I screwed up again. God doesn't love me. Throw that out. That's, that's not how this works. Because I don't want anyone here who is a believer thinking that somehow you aren't doing enough. That's, again, not what the gospel is. If you have given your life to Jesus, then he has covered your sins. Um, the Old Testament scholar I referred to earlier, Michael Heiser, um, put it in a way that I think is, I, I just, I love the way that he puts it. Um, so, what isn't gained by moral perfection can't be lost by moral imperfection. So, I just want to leave you with a few resources, because I'm, that's, that's what I do, that's what I like, that's what I'm about. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, one of the main ones I listen to is, don't panic, it's called the Naked Bible Podcast. <laughs> um, so, if you want to dive in a little bit more on uh, this idea of good works and salvation, because I know, I know people who have really struggled with that, and I struggle with that sometimes too, just like getting that idea out of your head that it's not about what you do. So if you're interested, there are two episodes, oh, and then also, uh, also this idea of bearing God's name um, and being a, being a representative of, of, of God. So there's two episodes that I want to point you to out of the Naked Bible podcast. So um, episode two, 213, uh, Do Good Works Contribute to Salvation? And then episode 302, Bearing God's Name with Another, so that's um, they're both by Michael Heiser, but the, the 302 has a, another Old Testament scholar named Carmen Imes as well who comes on and talks about that concept. So if you want to dig a little further into those ideas, um, I'll post those in the, in the Facebook page for you, or if, if you're not on Facebook, just come and ask me and I'll figure out a way to get them to you. Okay? So um, I'm going to invite the worship team up here to... Um, Man your stations. So um, I'm just going to say a quick prayer while we do that. So, Lord God, we give thanks for your provision in our lives. Help us to see others through your eyes and to greet others in love, even those we deem as enemies. Help us to remember that if we are in Christ, then there is now no condemnation. We ask that you impart to us the desire to represent Christ to the people in our lives and in the world. We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is coming, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Amen. Jesus' blood and righteousness.